Hello, everyone, and welcome to, I think, what is, for what it's worth, episode 48. It's my first one of 2021. Uh, I would normally put my phone on airplane mode so I don't get any feedback, but my wife is going to go out and run errands, and I can almost guarantee that at some point in the next, whatever, 45 minutes, she's going to call me. So I have to leave it on, so if there's a little feedback, you'll know why. Uh, It is January 6th. Our government implodes and embarrasses all of us once again. Uh, Hopefully this will be over soon and we can put ourselves out of our miseries. So one thing that I want to mention here before we get started on this five-star grade-A filet mignon of content that is about to follow is I think we're doing, as a collective here in the United States, we are doing a poor job uh, of living a normal life. We are drawing too many lines in the sand. Everybody seems to be dug in on one side or another, and every single day we seem to etch a little bit deeper and a little bit deeper. And as a collective, it is obvious that this is not serving us as a country or a people or a species or humanity. It's not serving the environment. It's not serving us politically. It's not serving us financially. The divides are getting further and further apart. And for the life of me, I cannot understand why this is happening outside of the misinformation campaign that's happening on a global scale down to an atomized scale on the other end. Uh, Today, there was another article about Facebook and Instagram um, being the absolute, the quote-unquote super spreaders of misinformation. Earlier today, I saw a woman say that she didn't want Biden to be president because she felt she would be forced to learn Chinese as a language. That's what happens when you spend time on the internet and on social media, and that's happening on the global scale down to the individual people, and that's because others on the outside are taking advantage of that, from Zuckerberg on down to the corporations, etc. So we draw lines in the sand, and we politicize things that we shouldn't politicize. I was telling someone yesterday that I was yelled at once in a parking lot on my bicycle by a guy who said, quote, you have no right to be here on that bicycle doing what you're doing. You should be here in a car. That's that's kind of where we're at. So those of you listening to this podcast who live overseas, uh, don't be shocked. That That's who we are as a nation now, and it's been this way for a long, long time. We're very good about putting up a facade about what this country is. Another friend uh, in the UK wrote me today and said uh, was writing about the fact that an African-American had won the Senate seat, Senate seat in Georgia and that how few, if any, he's potentially the first one, I don't know the facts for sure, but potentially the first Democratic black senator from that state, I don't know. But he said something along those lines. And I said, that might be a surprise to you in the UK, but it won't be if you've ever been to the South in the United States, or frankly, pretty much anywhere. I mean, I was born in Indiana, and the line of the history of racism in that state is pretty astounding. So we're not this like well-oiled machine, and I don't think we ever have been, and we probably never will be. But just stop drawing lines in the sand. If you can't look at both parties in America and see the buffoonery that is our political system, then you're not looking very hard because it's kind of a joke. All right, let's move on to uh, what do we got this week? Okay, who is this podcast for? If you're new to this podcast, you're probably already gone. But if you're, if you're trapped or someone's forcing you to listen to this, this podcast is for anyone who knows the words to the song Heartbeat. And if you know what I'm talking about... This podcast is for you. And if you don't know what the song Heartbeat is, well, today's your lucky day because your life is about to change. This is a little gem that came out several decades ago by one Don Johnson, a vocal powerhouse. He's probably the supreme being to ever walk the face of the earth, also known as James Sonny Crockett, also known as Sonny Burnett. We're going to get to a little bit more about Miami Vice here in a minute because 
I'm about to come unglued if something goes down that I think is going to go down. So if you know the words to heartbeat, welcome aboard. Okay, who is the hero of the week? Well, we have a couple. And they're up from completely out of right field. The hero of the week is the goat boat. Not the goat boat. That would be, that's not right. Not goat boat. Scratch that. Ghost boat that washed ashore with 1,400 pounds of cocaine. Someone found that. Now, 14, if you take 1,400 pounds of cocaine, you're be, you would be considered a hoarder. So you want to share the cocaine that you find. But whoever built the ghost boat and loaded it with 1,400 pounds of cocaine, which seems like a lot of cocaine. I've never done cocaine, and I've never held cocaine, and I've never measured cocaine or cut it up and sold it. But I'm thinking, even though I'm not a math guy, I'm thinking that 1,400 pounds of cocaine is quite a bit. And why hog it all? So ghost boat commander, I tip my hat to you. And the second uh, hero of the week uh, is someone completely out of right field, which is a professional tennis player from India named Leander Pays. P-A-E-S. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Now, I played tennis in high school. I played a little bit in college. Uh, the, the competition level in, in professional tennis is absolutely obscene. You have to basically start being groomed to be a pro player by the time you're in like middle school. You go to a tennis academy. You typically don't go to college anymore. I think John McEnroe, uh, you know, his era was sort of the end of people going to college to become professional tennis players. It still happens every now and then, but you're really behind the eight ball. If you go to college, you have to go to these academies. I was never that good. I was never going to be able to do that. I was like a punching bag. And I played a style of tennis, which at the time uh, was, was atypical. I was a serve and volleyer. And everybody was a baseliner. Everybody was sitting in the back watching Andre Agassi and hitting these massive topspin shots. And I was like, let's just get this over with. And I would serve and volley. And then the first thing I would do at every competitive tennis match is I would drop shot my opponent, bring him into the net, and then try to bean him. And that was sort of my entertainment because I knew I was going to lose anyway. And so I thought, why not put the fear of God in this person and I'll drop shot him and then I'll literally just do everything in my power to hit him. And they'll know that I was trying to hit him, even though I would do that tennis gesture where you put your hand in the air like, sorry, even though you don't mean it. And that worked a couple of times. I won a few matches, but most of the time I got my, my ass handed to me because the competition was amazing. These school, even the schools I went to were recruiting kids from overseas. So Leander Payas Pays or Payas, I don't know how you pronounce it. Sorry, Leander. Um, he's been a professional tennis player for 30 years. Okay, now he's a double specialist. He's not a singles player. He's a double specialist. But think about that. 30 years of playing professional tennis. And if you think this is easy, you are wildly mistaken. Just think of the travel demands of 30 years of being on the road of playing not only the big four tournaments, but all the other satellite tournaments and the, I forget what they call them, the Masters series and all that. It's perpetual travel for 30 years. All of the training that goes involved, all of the, the paying for the coaching and the hotels and the travel and the scheduling, it's a freaking nightmare. I traveled for six years straight for Blurb. That was a nightmare too. And so to play tennis on top of it, but get this, he has been a professional player in seven Olympic games, and he's about to play in his eighth Olympic games. Think about that. He's represented his country seven times at the Olympics. Who does that? Nobody. Him. So he's my hero of the week. If you haven't played tennis, you're not missing much. I play now. My entire body aches within 30 seconds, and I go, what am I doing out here? I'm never touching this again. So anyway, scum of the week, man, it was really hard. This was a really hard week for scum of the week, because there's just so many options out there as to who it could be. Uh, it could be Trump for giving up the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge at the, at the last minute, just to spite all the environmentalists and burn our own, our own nature preserve. That, that could be there. 
You could uh, Rudy Giuliani and Vanilla Ice for Dancing Maskless at a Mara, Mara a doucher in Florida. Uh, or it could be maybe the one that jumps out this week is Rudy Gombert. I'm going to call him, it's Gombert, whoever's that, the senator from, I think he's from Missouri, whose te- his teeth fell out at, a, at an interview recently, which I'm not, you know, whatever. If you lose your teeth, that sucks. Uh, trying to overturn the election. Uh, Mike Pence could be up there this week. I mean, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to lean the scum of the week towards the Republicans, but what, what's happening? I think maybe the person who takes it this week is Ted Cruz. I mean, to watch the video of Ted Cruz talking about Donald Trump in 2016 and then hearing him today, that's incredible. And we all know it's incredible, but it's, there's so much insanity going on that it literally just gets swept under the rug, like Nunes and Jordan winning the medals. I mean, I don't know. The scum of the week, we're going to have to divide it into 10 parts equally and just dole it out. And uh, I'm sure there's other people that deserve it this week, but those, those folks are uh, – and I'm taking Vanilla Ice off the list. Because I was in college when Ice Ice Baby came out, and don't lie, every single one of you knew this, knew the lyrics. Every single one of you danced to that at a club with some girl you didn't know but were hoping to know, or boy that you didn't know were hoping to know. And uh, we all were there. And I drove a five O Mustang, so I have nowhere to I have nowhere to go. I can't hide. I can't run from this. That I was a, a devotee, a disciple of Vanilla Ice, Robbie Van Winkle, or whatever his real name is. Whatever, bud. I tip my hat to you. I wouldn't have played Mar-a-Lago without a mask, but uh, whatever. Okay, question of the week. And again, we've got about 10 points I'm going to get to here. And by now, you're probably sobbing, and that's normal. I mean, when you get hit with this kind of content, it's hard. Take it in small doses. Maybe turn it off and come back to it. Go to church. Go to confession. Come back. Question of the week. What's, there's two. What's worse, hospital food or airline food? I'm going with hospital. And this I do not get for the life of me. I am reading a book right now by Terry Tempest Williams, who's one of my all-time favorite authors. She's based in Utah. She, every single thing I've ever read of hers is remarkable. And she writes a lot about the natural world. But she has a very famous book called Refuge, An Unnatural History of Family and Place. And it's a simultaneous story of Great Salt Lake and the flood that happened in the 80s and the death of her mother via cancer. And it's an incredibly personal, personal, personal book. And... I, her mother's in the hospital and they don't really talk a lot about the food, but in my head, I was like, God, hospital food is the freaking worst. It's worse than the airline food. I mean, at least airlines make a veiled attempt at hiring a famous chef to come in and make something palatable, but the hospitals don't even try. And I don't, for the life of me, we're here, here we are at our weakest point. We're the most miserable, most weak. And here we are in an awful building with windows that don't open with food that is inedible. We have to change this. Oh, I have an idea. All of you proud boys who are rallying in D.C. and fighting with the police, if you can organize that many dudes to get together at one time, why don't you do something that's beneficial to everyone instead of fighting a fictional war? So why don't you solve the hospital food problem? That would be amazing. Because I guarantee within that crowd of guys fighting with the police, there's somebody that would have an idea that might be able to change this. Because hospital food is horrendous, and we have simply got to change it. They are making some inroads into making hospitals more hospitable places in terms of putting artwork up, putting nature scenes, putting giant jumbo screens with you know drone footage of the Sahara, all that stuff that you look at and you go, okay, that makes me feel better. Pumping in smells from the natural world, because right now it's inhumane, and we need to change that, and I have no idea how, but someone out there probably does. And the second question of the week is, how long would you last, be honest, How long would you last in an alley fight with Chuck Norris? 
Now, and I don't mean the young Chuck Norris from Breaker Breaker. You, he would kill all of us, and he would take his time and, and, and throat rip all of us. But I'm talking about the Chuck Norris now, and I think Chuck Norris is like 80. And I swear, I'm not blowing my own horn here, and I know this is going out on a limb. I think I take him. I think I take the 80-year-old Chuck Norris in an alley. Now, he would have those stretch, crotch, gusset jeans from the 1970s that I wanted as a kid that my parents wouldn't let me have. And he would have his cowboy boots. And you don't want a wheel kick in the head with a cowboy boot. However, there's no honor in a street fight. I'm throwing human waste at him. I'm throwing garbage can lids. I don't care what it is. There are no rules. I'll bite him. I'll gouge him. I think I take him. I mean, I'm 50, I just turned 52. He's 80. And I would just, man, I'd be like a spider monkey, side to side, looking for weaknesses. And I'd go for the joints. Because at 80, your joints are basically mush anyway. I think I take him, but how long would you last? I'm guessing most of you would get your asses kicked. That's just a hunch. I don't think my audience is much. We're not street fighters. None of us. I'm not either. I would probably. I talk. I say this now, but when confronted, I'd probably run. Okay, uh, almost to point one, but we have one more. Uh, this is becoming a reoccurring section, and I think I like it, which is my tech woes. Now I hope that this is entertaining to you. And the Apple lovers out there, the Apple fanboys, the Apple apologists, just know I'm not making this up. It's the same thing when I tell you that I wear a Seiko watch because it's the only brand that doesn't implode with the death ray that my body puts out. I wear a Seiko. Every other brand has broken from the time I was in middle school. You explain it. I can't. I think my body has a magnetism of some weird, misguided bent, and it breaks everything. Uh, and so my tech woes continue. Now it is with my phone and my new laptop. By the way, the new laptop battery lasts about an hour at best, which that's not right. Something's wrong with it, but that's what I have, so I just keep it plugged in. Uh, but now the laptop will not recognize the phone as a hotspot. I've been doing this for a year. My iPhone 11 was fine. Every time I turned it on and said, look for the iPhone 11, it was right there in the dropdown. Boom, and it connected within a second, and I was off to the races. Now it takes approximately 15 minutes and 15 attempts to get this to work and requires both a restart of the laptop and a restart of the iPhone 12 at least once. Then I have to take the toggle the button that says make maximum compatibility. That cannot be on. And the phone has to be plugged in to the laptop. And even still, it will take dual restarts, sometimes more than one when the phone and at least 15 attempts and 15 minutes to get this to sync up. And then the phone goes from absolutely blazing fast Wi-Fi speeds to zero. And I noticed this because I'm trying to upload. Uh, someone came and made a film about me a couple of days ago. And I was uploading images, stills for him to use in the film. And it said, you know, uploading through Dropbox, uploading whatever, 314 megs. And, um, and then it would say, unable to connect even though I still had a full Wi-Fi signal. And then it would connect again. It would go for a while, then say unable to connect. Then I would lose the service. That's what's happening right now. Uh, I can only imagine that this is, this is never going away. I am, I am a walking tech woe. And oh, by the way, Blurb is sending me an old trash can Mac Pro to, for doing video. So may, we'll see how this unravels here in the near future. Okay, point number one. It's a little bit about the police. And uh, I am not a fan of defunding the police. I don't think that's the right strategy. I think we need need police, and I think the police actually do some some good things in, as opposed to, in, in addition to all the bad things that they do. I think they're like every, basically every other business. Look at Facebook. Do they do some good things? Maybe. Do they do some bad things? Oh yeah. But um, there was something that happened with the Boston police recently, where they someone had a body cam 
uh, one of the one of the officers was wearing a body cam, and he recorded some stuff that was people said was quote shocking. Uh, of where they were beating protesters and one cop was saying, I drove over a bunch of people on the way here and was kind of laughing. And then his buddy like points down and goes, it's on, it's on, meaning the body camera's on. And then the guy tries to backpedal. Again, I've, and I've mentioned this before, if you're surprised that this is happening, then you you have been living in a cave your whole life. Um, this has been happening my entire adult life. And I've probably had a lot more run-ins with police based on what I was doing for a living than the average person. So, and it's been ATF, it's been Secret Service, it was Border Patrol, Sheriff's Department, um, L.A. County, Houston, uh, Phoenix, all over the place. Uh, I even had a weird encounter with uh, police in Laguna Beach. I had a weird encounter here in Santa Fe with police. So I completely and utterly expect this. I know that this stuff, go, this stuff goes on. If you are surprised by this, <clears throat> then you're not educating yourself because it's, it's been – if you get that many dudes together doing anything, there's going to be some bad stuff going on. It's like – Oh, man, I'm, stories are ripping through my head right now. A friend of my brother's used to organize this big party every year down on the Texas coast, on the Gulf, and it was debauchery. I mean, if you got that many of us together in one thing, it was like a pack of wolves eating Bambi. Uh, Bambi was innocence in life, and we were the wolves, and we found ways of, of, of basically soiling every aspect of being human. So the police are no different. There's a code there, and so don't be surprised uh, and know that just because those idiots in Boston were doing that doesn't mean that every cop you run into on the street is bad. There's a lot of cool cops out there. I know some of them personally. I knew some as kids. My neighbor in Indiana and out in the middle of nowhere was a sheriff's department guy. I played with his son all the time. He was like a stand-up dude. So uh, let's not blanket statement. Again, don't be drawing lines in the sand. Okay, uh, this happened at least six times this week. This is point number two. Six times this week, someone said to me, Milner, why are you not monetizing your website? And I get this all the time. And the point, uh, the first thing I want to say about this is not everything needs to be monetized. But secondly, I've never seen someone monetize a website without selling out. And that's what really bothers me is number one, what am I trying to sell? I don't know. I'm not selling my photographs. Every time someone reaches out to get a print from me, I say no. And I do whatever I can to talk them out of it. I tell you not to buy my books online. And I don't have any interest in identifying with being a photographer. So that is out. Uh, I guess I could sell education of some sort, uh, but I don't even know what that would be. I would love to sell the idea of you riding your bicycle. I think that that's a very, something I'm very much interested in. And for those of you who don't ride, is it because you hate your life? You hate your bicycle? You're, too, you're afraid because the traffic is scary? Uh, what it is? I don't know, that you live in a hilly area, whatever it is. So I have not monetized the shifter site because every time I go to a friend's site that's monetized, it looks like a billboard at a used car lot. And I just go, this is not good and not pretty, and it's kind of embarrassing. So if you have any w idea of how I could do this, and I guess Patreon would be a way, but I don't know. My generation, for us, I think, it feels kind of weird to ask strangers for money for no reason. And I guess maybe the reason is that I'm providing some sort of entertainment or education. I don't know. Maybe. I could try a Patreon thing, but uh, again... Is it part of my priority? I have a job. I have a full-time job. I'm a salaried employee. They pay me well. What else do I need? Okay, moving on. Point number three. This is maybe the, mo the most important point I've ever made in my entire life. I need you to stop what you're doing. I need to put your children away, and I need you to listen. Because I was on YouTube wasting time, and I came across a trailer. And I don't know if it's real or not. Chances are not, but I'm, a part of me was like, holy crap, if this is real... It's DEFCON 1. I'm, I'm springing into action. I have a bodysuit on, and I'm going to take action. And that is there was a trailer for the 2020 version of Miami Vice. 
Now, for those of you who don't know, Miami Vice was the single most important television show of all time. And it was based in Miami, Florida, and it covered two cops, Sonny James Crockett and Ricardo Tubbs. And they were a part of the basically the Miami Police Department, but they were badasses, and they were fighting the cartels and the drug wars and all kinds of people. They had a team around them. They had uh, Edward James Olmos as Castillo, who was the, uh, the chief of police, who was a very peculiar character with only one tragic flaw. There was a scene of, of Castillo swimming in a black Speedo in a bay, and, and it was a horrifying scene, and it was something I wish that they had never done, and I hope no one ever sees it again. And the bay that he was swimming in looked like a sewage treatment plant. It was not pretty, so I'm not sure why they chose that body of water and why they put him in a Speedo and why they stayed so long on those scenes that are etched into my brain like a disease. So here's the thing to the people who are making this remake, if in fact you are making it, because the trailer was horrific. You cannot, under any circumstances, redo Miami Vice on network television. You cannot do it. It's 2021. We are not that stupid. You cannot do it on network television, number one. And number two, you can't do a tongue-in-cheek cutesy remake referencing all the things that happened in the in the original series you cannot do that you should go to jail if you are even thinking about doing that i have solved everything for you i've solved it all i've got it down i haven't even written this down because i don't need to it's in my brain it's what i spend most time every day thinking about is what i would do if there was a remake of miami vice here's what you do you got to find Tubbs first. I don't know where he is. I haven't seen or heard of that guy in years. Hopefully he's out there and he's down. He's probably at home with a shotgun ready for someone to remake this. I hope. If you're out there, Ricardo Tubbs, we need you. The second thing is, here's here's the storyline. Miami is a narco state. Florida is a narco state. The, the cartels have infiltrated, and you get Don Winslow as a consultant here. Okay, so they've, they've infiltrated Miami. They've got one of the state Supreme Court judges. They've got the court system. They've infiltrated the police department, and the police you know, are in the middle of these, all these protests, and their hands are tied, and the, and the state and city are about to topple. And you go get the guy who knows how to play outside the rules. And the new Miami Vice has to be dark. I'm talking dark. Even James Bond has changed. The days of Sean Connery and Daniel Craig, totally different. And the darker they go, the better it is. So here's, the, here's what you do. You spin the tale. That's Sonny, Sonny Burnett, which is Crockett's undercover name. Sonny Burnett has been away working for the cartels. He's in Uruguay. And I just pulled Uruguay because lots of people have gone to Uruguay to disappear over the years, if you know what I mean. So you go from Uruguay. And all of a sudden, Burnett, who is his code name, comes back. And these cartel members are like, oh, man, I remember this guy, Sonny Burnett, from the 80s. He was a fast boat runner and was smuggling drugs, and you bring him back. And so Crockett knows how to work outside the bounds of legality in the police department. And you bring him back, and Tubbs comes back, and they just lay waste to the cartels in Miami. That's how you do Miami Vice the remake. If you do a kitschy thing, I'm going to find the producers. And I'm going to protest outside your office with a sign 365 days a year. This is sacred ground, people, and don't mess with it. That's my advice. Okay, speaking of Don Winslow, point number four. If you don't know author Don Winslow, he did a series, and my friend um, Jack was the one that turned me on to, to this a long time ago. Thanks, Jack. And so Don Winslow is a writer. He's done a, a lot of books. He's probably done 15 or 20 different books over the years. Um, he's had a very interesting career, life, outside of being an author, prior to being an author. But he has a series of books about the border 
that are fantastic. He also wrote a book called Savages, which was made into a film by Oliver Stone. I thought it was a terrible film. Sorry, Mr. Winslow. The book was great. So you have Kings of Cool, you have Savages, you have The Cartel, and the last book in the series is called The Border. And I just finished it. And what I like about Winslow is he blends real world, real time events with what's happening and sort of lays this tapestry of information about how the cartels are connected to the United States, our politics, our government, our people, and, and weaves all of these real world activities into, what's, into, this, into this novel. And it's well done. And the border is like something like six or 700 pages. But if you don't know Don Winslow, start with the first book on the border trilogy and and do that and then so it's like kings of cool savages the cartel and i don't remember what the first two in the series are but all of those books are good and they're all about mexico and if you're like me and you love the border and you love mexico and you're fascinated by the drug war and you're fascinated by the 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 sort of connections to the drug war inside the united states these are great books okay moving on point number five is about an app uh, and I've talked about this before on my site about recording my physical activities. And I sometimes record physical activities for myself out of curiosity about things like how many calories I'm burning and what my heart rate is. It's not so much about distance or elevation climbed or all that stuff. That's kind of interesting at times, especially when you come back and I just immediately have to take a nap and I go, oh my God, that ride was was hard. What did I do? I can look back on it. But I'm not super keen on sharing all the data because it kind of then makes it feel like I'm doing look at me, look at me, look at me. And there's no real point. I want you on your bike, but you, me seeing, you seeing me ride a 5,000 foot elevation gain, you're probably like, you're an idiot. I don't want to do that. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is yesterday I got this really funny text from someone who I think lives in Las Vegas. And it's a guy I've never met in person, but he sent me a text message and it was him on his bike riding in the neighborhood. And he was absolutely thrilled. And he was like, Milner, I'm on my bike because of you. And I need to take my health seriously. And I'm now on my bike and it feels great. And I can't wait to do this. And he had a plan for like how many days a week he was going to ride and how far. And he was stoked. And he was like, it's because of you and this one other guy. And I was like, okay, cool. So it works. What I'm doing with the cycling and stuff works. But there's an app called Komoot, K-O-M-O-O-T. And I didn't really know anything about it, but I somehow had it on my phone. So at one point, I knew something about it. And I turned this thing on, and I'm tr- I've tried to map this route out here forever, which is about a 75-mile ride from my house. And there's one section of it that goes across basically ranch land. And, there's a f- and when you're out there, there's these dirt tracks that go off in all directions, and it's really easy not to get lost, but to get on the wrong track that ends in like some barbed wire fence or some private gate or whatever. And I'm like, God, I've never been able to punch this through to make a loop. So I literally go on Kamut, com- on I punch in my house, and I punch in this destination, and it just goes bing, and it's done. And it maps this entire route across, like, you just can't believe it. And I'm like, holy crap. And so I started using Komoot, and I just got a, uh, a lock guard or something for my bike so that I can attach my phone to the handlebars. I was going to buy a, a Wahoo Element Roam, which I might still at some point, which is like a GPS navigation thing. But ha- instead of buying another piece of electronics, I figured I'd use my phone, and I can do primarily most of it that way. Um, and so if you don't know about Komoot, it's a pretty interesting app, and it was incredibly re- resourceful and just immediately mapped a route that I had trouble with for a long, long time. And uh, I've been on my bike now for two or three days in a row, which is great. Uh, I had not ridden in a couple of months because it was absolutely freezing. I figured out 
uh, I've never lived in, I mean, in my adult life, I never lived in a four season community where I had to worry about what I wore during the winter on my bike. And you certainly do here. It's been in the teens in the morning and highs in the high thirties, low forties. And boy, if you're not prepared, it's miserable. And I know because the first couple of rides I did, I could not keep my hands and feet warm. And my hands were so painful. I was still probably 10 miles from the house and my hands were in such pain from the cold. I was absolutely miserable. And I came in, I took my gloves off and my wife goes, what's wrong? What's wrong? And I'm literally walking around the house bent over because my hands, when the blood starts to come back into my fingers, there's so, that burning, burning pain. I told you my wife was going to call. I'll be back. Okay. So I'm back. Yes. My wife called me. How did I know? Uh, Jesus. It was like clockwork. I knew that was going to happen. Oh, Hey, guess what? She's calling again. Okay. I am back. Uh, where were we? The Miami Vice, Don Winslow, Kamut. Uh, oh, let's talk space force just for a second. I don't have anything to say about it other than the whole thing is absolutely absurd. And the fact that it looks like they stole the logo from Star Trek is hilarious. And to see Mike Pence waving a flag about Space Force was maybe one of the best things I've ever seen in my life. That's all I'm going to say. I think it would be cool, and it's probably something we should do. But I think I would start first with what's happening under the Arctic Ocean uh, and people stealing what uh, rights to the bottom of the seafloor. Let's start with a force that works there, and then we end up in space. Uh, And by the way... If you haven't seen the documentary about Bob Lazar on Amazon Prime or Netflix, I can't remember which one, watch it. I don't know anything about the UFO scenario. You know what? I'm just going to make this a new point before I get to the NFL and one player in particular. But when I was in probably in college, maybe freshman college, sophomore in college, I was driving between Johnson City, Texas and San Antonio. I was by myself. And at the time, 281, which is the highway there, was a two-lane blacktop. Narrow country road. Now it's probably a six-lane superhighway knowing Texas. It's sprawl there like you cannot believe. But anyway, back in the day, I was in my, in my 1983 FJ60 four-speed Land Cruiser 4x4, my all-time favorite vehicle. And I'm just trucking along, trucking along. And I look to the east, and there's a, almost a full moon out. But I look to the east, and I see this thing in the sky, which is three blue triangles, one on top, and then two below, so itself, the three of them forming one big triangle. And I looked up at it, and I was like, hmm, that's weird. Never seen, well, I wonder what that is. I've never seen anything quite like that. That's pretty interesting shape. My guess was it was a blimp or a balloon or something because it wasn't moving. And I thought, okay, I'm going to keep driving because I'm getting at the angle where I'll, I'm going to backlight this thing with the moon, and I'll be able to see what it is. So I drive a little further, and the thing's still there. It's not moving. And I look up, and I looked. Now the, it's basically backlit by the moon. And I see this thing that's a shape that I've never seen before in the sky. And I was like, wow, what is that? So I pull my truck over, I turn it off, and I'm like, if I turn the truck off, I'll be able to hear it, like what kind of propulsion it has. It's either a blimp or it's a plane or something. I just, it's, maybe it's a weird angle. And I look up at it, I turn my truck off, and it is dead quiet. And it's not that far away. And I'm looking at this thing, and I'm like, what the hell is that? And I look back down to turn my headlights off, And I look back up and it is gone. And it's gone from the entire horizon. It is nowhere to be seen. So I don't know if that was a UFO. I guess technically it is a UFO because I couldn't identify it. But I'm not saying it was an alien craft that was like Richard Dreyfusing me at a railroad crossing. No. What I'm saying is I cannot explain it. And I'll give you another little secondary story here. A few years ago, I went to the Alien Festival in Roswell. 
Now, rumor has it that in the 1950s, an alien craft crash craft crashed near Roswell, and it was taken to the local military base and then taken on to D.C. and then eventually on to Area 51, where they were able to study the craft and study the occupants of the craft because the debris was picked up by this base commander, and, and then he and the debris were taken away. And I go to the Alien Festival a few years ago, and I didn't even know what the Alien Festival was. I was there to make onesie-twosie pictures to add to my project about New Mexico, which I did. I made a picture that's one of my all-time favorites, which is the guy in the space helmet with the disposable camera around his neck tied with a shoelace. That's one of my favorite pictures from the project. And so I'm there, and there's a parade, and people are dressed up as aliens, and the town, every, every town has a, every store has a gimmick about aliens, and you know, it's all the fake, phony stuff that you would think. But there's a speaker series. And I go to this, who I think is the keynote speaker of the entire event, and it's the son of the base commander. And so I'm in this auditorium, and I'm looking around, and I'm like thinking I'll be there for five minutes and bail. And I look, and he gets up to the podium, and he basically goes, I don't like any of you, and I don't want to be here. And he proceeds to say that like this whole event ruined their lives, and you know everyone should go home and all this. And I was like, wow, that's not what I expected. And also, I'm looking around the crowd, and I'm looking at these people who look like they're supposed to be there, the one, the conspiracy people with tinfoil on their head and you know alien costumes. But there's this other group of people who look like me, or even more conservative, who don't look happy. They look agitated. So I ma- make a mental note of who these people are. I check them off in my head. And when the, when the lecture ends and then we're all streaming into the parking lot, I start picking these people off one at a time. Hey, what's up? I noticed you were here. You look kind of agitated. You look a bit off. What's happening? Why are you so bent? And they all said exactly the same thing. One at a time. These were not as a group. They all said, I need some freaking answers. I saw something I cannot explain, and I, it changed my life because it freaked me out, and I don't know what it is, and I can't get any answers, and everyone's running, beating around the bushes, but nobody's telling me what this is. And they were there for answers. And I was like, wow, this is interesting because it reminded me that when I was a, a newspaper photographer and I was an intern, there was an older photographer there who would talk to his father was in the military. And he said they were in a Mustang convertible somewhere in Southern Arizona driving home once, once from somewhere. And they had the top down and the family was like, you know, probably singing, singing Carolyn along or whatever you do in a convertible Mustang with your family. And, uh, he said all of a sudden his father pulls the car over and he sees something in the sky. And he's, they're all sitting there as a family watching whatever this is. And they're like, holy crap. And then as the thing moves away, his father said to him, all I know is that wasn't ours. And I was like, okay, so I don't know. The odds are there's something out there. But the Bob Lazar documentary is awesome. Because I, first of all, I didn't know who Bob Lazar was. I didn't know what Element 115 was. I didn't know about any of this stuff. Um, it's fascinating and awesome. And watch it is all I'll say. Okay, let's move on to something really important, which is NFL analysts, NFL scouts and analysts. Now, as you know, I am completely and utterly down and out on the NFL after I heard Roger Goodell in the middle of the Black Lives Matter movement go, well, you know, this Colin Kaepernick thing, um, you know, maybe it's not about the flag. And this a-hole who did nothing but support Donald Trump and his racism crap until he found himself in the middle of the Black Lives Matter thing and then was like, uh-oh, I'm in the, I'm in the middle of a major storm here. I got to backpedal and comes out and claims that, oh, maybe this Kaepernick thing. And I was like, you traitor. That's it. I'm done. I've n- I, my, my beloved New Orleans Saints are in the playoffs. That's all I know. I don't care. I'm not watching NFL anymore. But there's one thing that I find very hilarious about this, and these are these NFL analysts. And if you watch NFL and you watch ESPN, you know who, exactly who I'm talking about. And these bozos 
are like the worst meteorologist in the world. They just spout nonsense for about six months prior to the draft every year, where every single player in college, in any school, anywhere, they allegedly have some insight as to who they are as a player and a human being. And it's so much BS, you cannot... They And by the way, the two analysts hate each other. And one will say, oh, this, this kid shows some real moxie. They all use the same terminology every year. It changes, but everybody adopts these, these idiotic expressions about players. And these guys are like, oh, this player, you know, he's seventh string in, in, a, in a community college in the middle of Alabama. But, you know, I've seen him. His, his explosion off the line is just impressive. I think he's going to go in the third round. And they're always wrong. They're wrong from player one to player 10,000. They're always wrong. And then the players get in the NFL, and the NFL is a totally different scenario from college. Not just on the field in terms of speed and talent and, expl- and, and pain and power and everything that happens in the NFL. And if you haven't been on the sidelines in an NFL game, I don't think you have any idea what I'm talking about because it is violent beyond all belief. And 300-pound guys that can outrun me, colliding, it's horrifying. And so they get up there, and they all have these assessments. And a few years ago, a quarterback came out of college, a particular college that I almost went to, which is the University of Wyoming and the Cowboys. And so I grew up around, at least in part, several months a year around Laramie, which is where uh, uh, University of Wyoming is. And so it's pretty rare that players come out of a school like Wyoming because it's a tiny school in the Mountain West Conference. And they very rarely do people come out and become successful in the NFL. But the Cowboys had a quarterback named Josh Allen, who's a, who's a stud. He's like, I don't know, 6'4", 6'6", ripped, huge, has an arm like a cannon, but he played at Wyoming. And these scouts were like just merciless with this guy. Oh, if somebody picks him, you know, it's, it's just all over. It's a wasted pick. It's a wasted pick. And I was like, well, you know, no one knows. The intangibles of being a human in a league where, you know, there's, a, there's uh, all kinds of, of opportunity to do the wrong thing as a human being. And lo and behold, apparently, I've not seen a single down of his career, but apparently he's killing it. And he has taken the Buffalo Bills. Yes, that Buffalo. Think mistake by the lake. No, that's Cleveland. Uh, Buffalo, freezing cold, lots of snow, dark for six months a year. That Buffalo. And he's taken them into the playoffs. Now, when I found that out, I just could not help but laugh because all I remembered were these scouts saying, He's just, a, he's just an arm. That's it. He can't throw touch passes, and he can't run an offense, and he's not a field commander, and all the military analogies they use as if these people are actually in a war. Anyway, I just want to tip my hat and say, Josh Allen, University of Wyoming Cowboys, way to go, because it just makes these analysts look like fools, and I love that. It makes me laugh. We take ourselves way too seriously. I was going to talk about uh, the Navalny poisoning in Russia. But I think we all, I mean, there's not really a whole, lot of, a whole lot to say about that because obviously Putin poisoned him. We know the people, the actual people who did it. We, see, we have their airline records. We know exactly how they did it. They accidentally got tricked into admitting how they did it. And then Putin just goes, I didn't do it. And everyone's like, okay, we can't really do anything to him. So I guess we just have to play along. Uh, that's crazy. I think it's only going to get worse. I think Putin has been so uh, energized over the last four years of knowing that they're in total control. What we should talk about here instead of the Navalny poisoning is the hack. And if I wasn't such a dumbass and I actually knew more about the inner workings of this hack, but apparently based on every single thing I have read, and I've read a fair amount about this hack, it is absolutely astoundingly bad. And we don't even know the end of it yet. 
They're so far into our system that we don't know how far in they are. The only person on earth who has said this is not a big deal is Trump. Because, and this is my philosophy on that. Trump doesn't know how to use a computer and doesn't email. And I think it's almost like the coronavirus when he said it's going to miraculously disappear. I think Trump is like someone from the 1500s. If you can't see it, if you can't see the bacteria, it doesn't exist. And if you can't see a hack, it doesn't exist. So a nuclear missile raining down on the U.S., it's a physical object. He's like, oh, that's bad. But a hack into cyberspace to someone who's never used a computer is probably not a big deal. And so I am fascinated by cybersecurity. If I was going to change my career right now, this is an area that I would head to rapidly. One, because I have an intense interest in it. And two, I think this is not going anywhere anytime soon. I think we are so far behind the eight ball in terms of offensive cybersecurity that it's going to take decades to dig out if we make it because the Russians are ahead of us and the Iranians are ahead of us and the Koreans are ahead of us and the Chinese are certainly ahead of us. And so we've got some catch up to do. And it seems like a field that would be fascinating to work in. Now, I know almost nothing about it. And if you're in cybersecurity, you're probably like, Milner, you're an idiot and you're watching too many movies, which is true. So let's move on. Um, Lefty snowflakes, my friends out there on the left, your government cared so much about you that they gave you $600 after 10 months. Just remember that. When you are drawing lines in the sand and saying, yes, am I happy that Trump is gone? Absolutely. Is, Trump was never a Republican. I don't even identify him with that party. I just identify him as, a, as a, basically an assassin that came in to break things. I'm happy he's gone. I look at the Biden presidency as a four-year deflection of what the, the disaster that would have happened to our environment, our culture, society, race, et cetera, with Trump. We got a four-year reprieve. I have no faith that Biden is going to fix everything, that we're going to miraculously turn our society around. We're going to fix our education system. We're going to fix the environment. I have zero hope that that is ever going to happen. I'm a realist. Um, But your lefty snowflakers, they gave you 600 bucks. So that's where we are as a government. Sucks. Uh, Okay, let's talk about, uh, this is going to be a new addition to this podcast, which is YouTube channels I like. And I was going to tell you about the YouTube channel I like, which was called Tribal People Try. Now, if you're out there, you're probably like, Jesus, this has been around forever. Where have you been? That's true. I'm not, I don't spend a lot of time on YouTube. But I saw this thing where tribal people, which are from, I think they've pulled them from India and Pakistan. And these are legit tribal people. Like when you see them, you're like, that guy or that woman, I don't know where they're from, but they're from a tribe. And they're giving them things like Dunkin' Donuts. Now, on the one hand, you could say this is horrendously cruel and cruel and awful and racist and classist and sexist and every horrible thing. However, the reason I choose not to view it that way is the expression and the kindness that emits from these people. They are the nicest people I have ever seen in my life. And when they eat a Dunkin' Donut for the first time or a piece of apple pie and you hear them explaining, first of all, they have to say to them, apple pie, apple pie, and they're like, those words don't exist in in their language. So it's hilarious. I was going to talk about Tribal People Try It, but I'm not. I'm going to talk about another channel and, um, and why I like it. And it's a channel, I think it's just called MAV, M-A-V. And MAV is short for Maverick, who is a kid from Minnesota. And uh, he's a kid, but I'm, he's in his 20s. He's not like 12. I, if I was watching a 12-year-old YouTube channel, that would be very creepy. And I would report myself. But he's like a 20-something kid. He's young. He lives at home with his parents. 
Now, on the surface, you're like, oh, I can't believe that. But it's actually kind of cool because, one, his parents look and sound very cool. They live in an incredible, very cool house. It's not a house that you would typically associate with Minnesota because of the stereotypes of Minnesota. You think igloo, right? But it's not an igloo. It's an actual house. And so this is a kid. It's His, his, his mantra is something like, uh, ma- the map channel where we do everything outdoors. And he's, he f- d- primarily does fishing, a tiny bit of hunting, and he does a lot of films about camping out of the back of his truck. And I know that sounds ridiculous, and it is. But for, here, here's why I like it. Number one, he reminds me of me. Because when I was that age, that's what I was doing. I was hunting and fishing all the time. I was primarily bird hunting. I've never been deer, elk, antelope hunting in my life. I would have if my parents were still doing that. But by the time I came up to the hunting age, my parents had really pulled away from the sort of bigger game. And we would just go bird hunting in South Texas, dove, quail, duck, geese, chucker, pheasant, you know, whatever. And then we had a big smoker that we would take out in the field. We'd hunt in the morning, smoke birds all day, then eat them at night. Real fantastic food. If you haven't had quail in a smoker with jalapeno and bacon, it's fantastic. And so I did a ton of fishing, a ton of hunting. I grew up in the country. That's just what we did before I became an enlightened human being and found the sacred sanctuous ground of professional photography, which is perfect, by the way. There's nothing wrong with it. It's, it's just perfect for everyone. And so Mav does these films where he basically has this Ford F-150, and he's got the back of it kitted out with a little sleeping platform and a heater, and he drives around, and he goes fishing, and he cooks fish on the back of his truck. And I know this sounds ridiculous. He also has a series where he goes to fast food restaurants, and he recreates their food in the parking lot with his own ingredients and then compares it to their food. I've never seen one of those, and I have no interest to watch that, but apparently they're very popular, which tells you how far down the rabbit hole of insanity we've all gone as a species. But what I like about the films, he doesn't shill anything. Of all the films of his I've seen, one time exactly, one time he said, if you like this film, hit the like button because I don't know if anyone likes this kind of material. And he's like, I don't want to just make films about my truck and camping. I want to do this other stuff. But if nobody wants to see it, maybe I won't do it, which is a mistake, dude. Do whatever the hell you want to do, and people will follow. Don't ever cater 100% to the crowd because it's the crowd. We're humans. Look at what's happening politically in the U.S. You want us to dictate what you make? You're hosed if you do that. But he's got like 300,000 followers. It's It's pretty great. And so here's what I like, too. I like he reminds me of me. I like the locations that he's at. Minnesota in the Great Lakes area is, is absolutely gorgeous. I've spent so little time there, but I, uh, prior to, well, after COVID hit, I was still planning on going up to Lake Superior in September, and that got scuttled. And so next year, I'm looking at a trip from New Mexico up to the Great Lakes, over to Maine, back to the Great Lakes, over to Seattle, and back to New Mexico, hopefully. Not, it's not looking likely at this point, but I'm hoping for that. And um, he doesn't chill stuff. That's the other point I like. And uh, he does these films that are simple. They just start, there's no bumper, there's no motion graphics, there's no very little drone footage. They're just him with a camera talking and doing stuff. And he's in the field actually doing stuff. He's not reviewing stuff that he potentially could use in the field. He's actually using it in the field. And it's so refreshing. It takes you a minute to go, oh my God, here's a guy who's actually doing what he's talking about and not trying to sell me the rod, the reel, the line, the tippet, the jacket, the boots, the truck, the rack, the blah, 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 all these films, you know, these overlanding communities where, where soccer moms in Beverly Hills are putting a front axle breather on their Land Rover to go get coffee. It's ridiculous. And so check out Mav. Seems like a cool kid. He's got the accent, too, of the Minnesotan. 
um, which I'm doing a her- terrible job butchering, but you know that accent from the Wisconsin, Minnesota area. It's very distinctive. Um, and anyone who's, who's, who's got the cojones to camp in, in the snowstorm in Minnesota, ugh, it sounds horrible to me. Uh, and let's move on. Speaking of that, and I'm going to end this podcast with me telling you a story about I accidentally took steroids. I dope myself to the gills. I was on the juice, and I have photo evidence of this. I'm going to end with that. But I also want to say something about YouTube, which is fascinating at the moment, is I'm wondering how many people die because of YouTube every year. And the reason I say that is in the, in the past few weeks, I saw someone on YouTube who was walking around Afghanistan, some hipster was walking around Afghanistan. Somebody else was walking around Syria, and there are people camping in tents in the Canadian Arctic right now so they can make YouTube films about what it's like to camp in the Canadian Arctic in a tent. And I'll tell you, I'll save you the trouble. It sucks. There's nothing good about it. You're freezing your nuts off. It is absolutely miserable. You're stuck in the tent. You're either cutting wood, burning wood, freezing, eating bad food, and praying for spring. That's what it's like to be in the tent, in the Canadian Arctic. You don't need a YouTube film to teach you that. But people are doing insane stuff for followers on YouTube. And I'm curious, how many direct deaths are related to the channel or to the network every year? I'm, I'm, I would guess it's, it's a bunch. All right, we're going to move on. Uh, blah, 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 blah. Okay, so I'm going to talk just quickly about bike tires, and then I'm going to talk about this story where I actually I accidentally doped myself to the gills. Okay, so I put I, I swapped out my Schwalbe Marathon Plus Tour 40 centimeter tires off my my salsa, and I put on Conti 2.2 Race King mountain bike tires, and I used slime tubes. I shouldn't have used slime tubes, only because they're really heavy. I found out there's this other tube called a Tubalito, and if you're you're probably laughing at me now if you know how to cycle because tubalitos have been around for a while, but they're these little orange tubes that roll up incredibly small. They're very they're two-thirds lighter than a regular tube, way lighter than a slime tube, but they're also more puncture resistant. And I should have tried the tubalitos. I didn't know they were out there. Like I'm not studying the cycling world. I'm just riding. So I, I should have gone that route, but I didn't. I have slime tubes and Connie 2.2s. I've done three rides so far. I'm getting close to 100 miles on the tires. They're slow on the highway. There's a little bounce, obviously, but uh, on the tarmac. But off-road, it is a, it's a dream. All these places that I used to be really cautious on those 40-centimeter tires, those Schwalbe's, when it was dry and loose, I had to be very careful. Otherwise, the front end could come out underneath me. Or if I had just applied a hair too much rear brake, that rear tire would come around like I was on ice. I crashed a couple of times based on that because when you're on a groom trail and it's hard and loose, it is like ice. So you have to be very careful about how much front brake you use in a corner and how much rear brake you use. With these tires, I just float. I don't even hit the brakes because the grip on the tire with the knobbies is so much nicer on groom trail. And in the winter, I'm riding less tarmac, more trail. And I made this swap. The bike weighs 150 pounds now. I don't really care. And the second thing I'll say about the bikes right now is I've got two, I've got a frame pack in the main triangle and I've got a rear seat post bag that are made by a company called Porcelain Rocket. When I bought the Salsa in 2013, the, the, a bike like the Salsa Fargo was rare. Hardly anyone was making a bike like that. Salsa was this pioneering brand that had decided to make bikes for adventure travel and for the Tour Divide and, and races like that. And so I bought it and to get frame packs, Salsa didn't even make bike packing packs. So I had one choice, which was Porcelain Rocket. And I think they're up in Canada. Small company, very cool. I communicated with them. They built these packs for the salsa, which I still have. But I'm going to swap them out and put them on my wife's bike. 
Uh, and I also have my, my, I still have my Bianchi cross bike and I think I'm either going to put them on that bike. So when friends come and ride, they have places to put their food and clothing and stuff when we go out on long rides, or I'm going to put it on my wife's bike. She is in the market for a new e-bike, which I promised her for her birthday and Hanukkah that I would buy her an e-bike. So I'm on the hook for that when eventually we sort out what we're going to get. And I am going to buy Apadura bikepacking bags. And I'm going to go smaller. I'm not going to do the full frame pack in the main triangle. I'm going to do the smaller bag across the top so that I can take my water bottles off the front fork and hold them inside the main frame, the main triangle. And I'm going to get Apadura fork bags so that I can store, number one on one side is my coffee setup, my stove and coffee setup on one side, and then random storage, probably camera bits and parts on the left. And then I'm going to get their handlebar bag, and I'm going to get their seat post bag. And I'm going to go Apadura. I've looked around at a lot of different bags. Ortlieb makes really nice bags too. Uh, but I like the Apadura. I like their weight. I like the fact they're waterproof. They look good. And I think I'm going to give those a go. And my plan here, depending on what happens with COVID, is to start doing multi-day rides on the bike, doing photo projects off of the bike. Nothing spectacular, nothing major, just whatever I can pull off. I'd love to do the border on a bike and ride from um, basically the Arizona border to the Texas border along the New Mexico uh, border area, which could be good, could be could be deadly. We don't know yet. But uh, anyway, that's my plan. Apadura bags, if you know anything about them. I, there's people riding all over the world with these bags. So what I'm going to do with them is minor. But um, I'm going to be placing some orders soon just for fun and see what is what. Okay, let's end this damn thing. I have got a really great story. And the reason I'm telling you this story is I recently saw a photograph of myself and my mother which I think was taken either by my father or my sister. So my parents left San Antonio, and at one point they lived on a place called Lake LBJ, which was north of San Antonio in a place called John, uh, Marble Falls was the closest town, and Granite Shoals was the even smaller town that was close to where my parents were. And they lived out on this peninsula, and they had my dad had a bass boat, and I had a little 18-foot aluminum boat with an outboard motor and a, and a trolling motor on the front that I would use for fishing. I fished all the time. I fished every single day when I was around there. And so my mom has this picture, or someone has this picture, and it's my mom on the dock with the, the boats in the background, and I'm photobombing her, before that was a term, behind her, and I'm posing like a bodybuilder. I'm doing that side pose where I'm holding one arm and I'm flexing my bicep, and then I, like one leg is out like those bodybuilders do where they shake their thigh, and then they freeze it up, and they show all the muscles. I'm doing that like an idiot in the background. And my, as I've mentioned before, my brother and I were masters at photobombing we ruined decades of family photographs by doing this. So I knew exactly what I was doing. I knew what camera the person was using, what the delay would be, and I would just pounce. And I'm doing this. And my mom's trying to look nice and normal and happy. And, you know, she's like smiling into the camera, and I'm in the background ruining the whole thing. But I saw myself, and I was ripped. I looked like a mini Mr. Olympia. And I was like, holy crap. Every single muscle in my body is pronounced and ripped, just shredded. And I was like, oh my God, I forgot about that. And here's, what, here's why that was the case. So this was after I'd graduated from college, before I got my first internship, which took almost a year. Uh, now, there's a reason why it took almost a year, and that has to do with um, a lot of political things. And I don't want to get wasted because I don't want to drag this story down because it's an epically funny story. So I have time on my hands. I would get up in the morning, and I would send letters out all over the place and on a typewriter. I didn't even have a computer. I had a typewriter, and I would send typewritten letters, 
and my portfolio out all over the country every day. I was trying everywhere, anything, anywhere to get an internship as a photographer. So this took almost a year. And if I wasn't sending portfolios out and I wasn't fishing, I was working out. And I worked out at this little Hickville gym. And I was working out to the point where every single day I was like peeing blood. And I remember the first time I came home and I peed blood, I was like, Dad, uh, I think I peed blood. And he was like, oh, must mean you got a good workout. That was the extent of his like, oh, maybe you should cut it back a little. No, he never said that. He was like, wow, you must be working out really well. That tells you the intellectual level of my family. So prior to this, prior to leaving school, as an undergrad, I got permission to take a graduate photo class because as an undergrad, I, before I even got to school, I, I'd already worked as a photographer. So I got into the college program at UT, and it felt so slow to me. I felt like I had already advanced way beyond what they were teaching me. And so I went to the department. I don't remember exactly how this happened, but I got permission as an undergrad to take a graduate documentary class, which was great. And there were only about six people in the class, and it was what I would call an adult class. It was legit. Everybody in that class was intelligent, focused, talented. They were all graduate students. They, they were going to be doing either writers or you know whatever they were going to do for a career. I was the only photographer. Everyone else was, I think, written, was a writer of some sort. And they day one of the class, they partnered you with one of the other students, and they said, that's your project for the whole semester, this other student. You document their life. And I got a guy who was a writer, uh, very smart, kind of, kind of shy, not, not super outspoken. And uh, we met in a cafe. And first of all, he turned my head inside out after I saw what he wrote about that initial meeting. His observation skills were so far beyond mine that I was just like, oh my God, I'm an idiot. I haven't even started this whole, I don't know what I'm doing. He was so much better than me. But I said to him, what are you? Who are you? And he said, I'm a climber. And now at that point in my life, I'd not, I didn't know anything about rock climbing, zero. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. He identifies himself as a climber. So I said, okay, um, I'm going to have to photograph you climbing. Now I have an intense fear of heights, so there's no way I'm wrapping off the top of a mountain to come down and shoot down. I'm no Jimmy Chin, right? I'm not, I'm in no in danger of winning the Oscar anytime soon for a climbing film. So I'm like, I'll shoot from the ground. Now we go out to climb. And the very first person I saw climb was either the editor or the publisher of Climbing Magazine. His name was Jeff. And I didn't know Jeff at all. I'd never seen Jeff. And so it's my guy, it's Jeff, Jeff's wife, and a fourth guy, who I think's name was Andy, I think, or Tony. I think it was Tony. And so I don't know anything about climbing. We're back in the Austin Greenbelt. And there is a climb, which I think was a 512D. Now, again, I don't know any of the rankings. I don't know the ratings. I don't know the scale. I don't know anything about this. The first person I see climb is this guy, Jeff, who goes up this 30-foot wall. And now here's a completely overhanging shelf with a crack in it. And he just scuttles across this crack. And at one point, he's hanging by two fingertips and is, kicks his feet loose spins around, reattaches his feet. Now I'm watching this and photographing from below and I'm like, eh, must not be that hard. That looks pretty easy. He just did that. I'm not, I'm not impressed. So I have no clue what's happening here and I'm photographing this. So I keep photographing and they say to me, hey, we're going to go out to a place called Waco Tanks in West Texas for a climbing contest and you should come and photograph that. So I drive out to El Paso. It's winter. Um, I almost run out of gas. At the I-10 at that point, there was nothing between like Ozona and El Paso. There was nothing out there. So I almost run out of gas. 
I make it to El Paso. It's freezing. I remember waking up at Waco Tanks in my truck in the morning, and it was inside of the truck was covered with ice. And um, I still have the same sleeping bag, by the way, that I had on that trip. But anyway, we're hanging out, and I'm now I'm I'm hanging out around with them during times of climbing and non-climbing times. So I'm observing their habits, what they eat, what they don't eat. They're the climbers still to this day are the most disciplined, fanatic in a good way athletes I've ever encountered in my life. Way more than NFL, pro baseball, pro basketball, pro football, pro golf, all of these sports that I've photographed over the years. Climbers are the most passionate and the most disciplined about their physicality because every ounce of weight counts when you're going up. So I noticed very little um, bad stuff going into their bodies, right? They were, And so one of these guys goes, I think it was Tony, says, I'm using this powder, this protein powder. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. I, don't, I had never had protein powder in my life at this point. And he, he tells me the name of this stuff. And I'm not going to tell you the name because I think it's still around, but this was prior to all of these supplements being inspected and prior to being able to like buy steroids over the counter. So flash, flash forward, I'm, I'm, I've left school. I'm no longer in contact with any of these climbing, climbing people. And I'm at my parent living at home, trying to find an internship, fishing, working out, and sending out portfolios. And I'm working out, and in the back of my head, I go, man, I should get some of that protein powder that Tony or Billy or Eddie or whatever his name was. I should get some of that. So I go to the store, and I get this stuff. And I swear to God, it was, ri- it was laced. I-, I was juiced to the gills. This stuff had to be, and I think they have had to legally uh, redo the formula because people were getting busted by taking this stuff and they were, they were testing hot for steroids. Well, uh, this was prior to anybody testing like that. So I'm just pounding this stuff. I come home from the gym. And by the way, you would take it and it felt like your head was going to explode, which should have been my first, uh, first indicator. I would come home from the gym, pound that stuff, pound it at night, get up in the morning, pound some more, go to the gym. I was... I was ripped out of my gourd. I would have tested hot on anything. I would have been in that steroid book that came out about Barry Bonds. I would guess my head size changed. It wasn't just my body. My head was probably three hat sizes larger than it was while I was in school. And I have photographic evidence of this. And it, I look at it now and I'm like, that, I, I can, it's hard to believe that it was even me. But it, but it is. And um and it's my brother and I used to joke, bury me big or don't bury me at all. And that, that is what I was. I was dope to the gills. I'm not proud of it. I was a juicer. I was on the juice. I did not have roid rage that I remembered. I did not have back knee. Um, it just, my body just said, yes, this is what we want. We want you to be big. We want you to be in Mr. Puniverse, Mr. Olympia. And I just pounded that powder. And I look back on it now and I'm like, I'll, it'll be a miracle if I don't have kidney failure by the end of my life based on my, my steroid cycle. So if you're looking for info about a steroid cycle and how to juice yourself to the gills, I'm the guy. I'm the one who has the answers. So that's the podcast for this week. I hope that was entertaining. I hope that was good. If you have any thoughts or comments, um, keep them to yourself. I don't really want to know, and I don't have time to answer your comments. <laughs> it's my site, and I'll do what I want. Anyway, I hope you've had a good start to the year, and uh, don't draw lines in the sand. If you if you've got a neighbor or a friend who's gone to the dark side, whatever dark side that is, 
don't draw the line in the sand. Reach out, acknowledge the fact that you guys are on opposite sides of the of the battle and say, look, let's meet in the middle and have a little conversation. I talk to people all the time who have vehemently different political views than I do. And yes, sometimes it's maddening, and other times I walk away by learning something, either about them or their position or a way that I can better approach the conversation. So I'm just tired of all the animosity and the negative energy. Let's fix it and move forward and get on with our lives. Good luck.